This is interesting. I so I I haven't I've taken over this office. Yeah. And some of the stuff is from me, and some of the stuff is from before. Mm-hmm. And I didn't put that up there, mm-hmm. but that's a prisoner's dilemma. Okay. So nice. it's just like somebody put a failure of one or both sides to calculate their risks. That's cool. If you and I are both, you know, we're being accused of something and we both remain silent, yeah. the value we get is negative one. Uh-huh. But if I betray you, I get zero and you get minus three. Uh-huh. And if you betray me, you get zero and I get minus three. Yeah. And you'd rather have zero than negative one. Right. So then we both betray each other and we get minus two. <laughs> but I, Wait, I... Guys, are are you two defense lawyers talking about the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma? <laughs> I was just this saying, is unbelievable. This is what we do. This is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? On this episode of Aider and a Better, we are joined by Somil Trevedi. He is a senior staff attorney in the ACLU's Criminal Reform Project. Somil, welcome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about the Orange County snitch scandal, what the Orange County uh, snitch scandal is, what its larger implications are, how criminal defense practitioners can work when these types of scandals are occurring without our knowledge and all sorts of other stuff. So we're, we're really happy to have you here. Can you tell us before we get started just a bit about how you found yourself as a senior staff attorney working in a criminal reform project? Sure. The quick version of the story is I actually started my career at a law firm, but then moved on to be a prosecutor in D.C., initially doing financial crimes, uh, you know, insider trading and things of that nature, since I'm a, a son of the financial crisis. And I thought this was the way to right the wrongs that occurred back then. Um, but then I did a detail at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. prosecuting misdemeanor crimes. Um, and I realized that our system of justice that is so vaunted and that we're told is the envy of the world is really just a conveyor belt to put mostly brown and black men in jail for far too long. Um, And nowhere do you see that more than in misdemeanor court, as I'm sure you two know. I was terrified of the amount of power I had um, to alter people's lives over virtually nothing. And so I decided shortly thereafter that while I believe in a functioning criminal justice system, an adversarial criminal justice system, the way we are doing it is so far from optimal and ideal and one that actually promotes public safety and, and harm reduction that I thought there's just, a, there's just a better way to do all of this. Luckily, the ACLU was thinking the same thing around that time. And so I jumped ship and now I'm very proud to be reforming from the outside. Did you think through the change it from within versus change it from outside? Obviously you did. You made a choice that you were going to do it through the ACLU. What was the thought process? It was a struggle because I, I do believe that we need um, government serv- servants working th- within the government, including in prosecution. I just didn't think as a line prosecutor, as a trial attorney, while I did have a lot of autonomy over individual cases, I didn't have the power to steer um, the individual office and certainly the United States DOJ in the direction that I thought we needed to go. While maybe that'll be the case someday, I think for now I could have more bang for my buck, although significantly fewer bucks at the ACLU, but more bang for my buck uh, working outside. Yeah, you couldn't change the trial tax. You could softly advocate against it 
in an individual case, but to structurally change it, you, you have to do it a different way. That's right. And that's actually a good segue to things like informant scandals, where individual public defenders can fight like hell to get relief for individual defendants. And we need more support for public defenders who do that and more support for um, impact litigation units within public defenders offices, right? Because they're closest to the problem. Um, but there are some uh, rots that are so deep and systemic that organizations like the ACLU can can help fix it at a systemic level. Why don't we get into this Orange County uh, informant scandal? I'll just tell you at the beginning, I've attended you know trainings where I've listened to one of the main attorneys participate, you know, explain it from his perspective. I've read newspaper articles about it. I've read coverage of it. And even then, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around in terms of what they were doing and why it was wrong. You know, when Kamala Harris was running for president, there was this thing about, well, Kamala Harris had involvement as the attorney general in the Orange County snitch scandal. You know, and that's, you know, kind of identified Mm -hmm. as a bad thing. You know, it's scandal. It has snitches. But could you help us understand, like, how you view what was happening, uh, what the sheriff's office or the county, Orange County, was doing and then how it related to the violation of people's rights? Absolutely. So what they were doing, the Orange County Sheriff's Department was cultivating informants within their jails because the sheriff runs the jails in Orange County. And by cultivating, I mean finding folks with extremely long sentences and nothing to lose, and then promising them perks. Um, And this included, in some cases, cash payments of hundreds of thousands of dollars, And most importantly, time off these long sentences in exchange for information against other defendants who are either pretrial or awaiting sentencing. And that is sort of a common practice around the criminal justice system. And I hope we can talk about how even that practice with that brief a description is problematic. But it's important to know just how diabolical the OC's version of it was. In Orange County, the sheriff wasn't just hoping that these informants would run into these pretrial defendants and maybe have a conversation about their case. They were producing intricate and vast spreadsheets and databases, tracking the movements of their informants as against the target defendants. They were manipulating the transfer system to put people in close proximity. And then, and here's the worst part, they were turning a blind eye to how the informants got the information. And in Orange County, that included everything including threats of violence and death. One of the most nauseating elements of the scandal is that these paid up compensated informants would approach the target defendant and say, for example, hey man, I got nothing against you, but I've heard that the gangs in the jail don't like what you did um, and you've been greenlit to get murdered. Um, So it was called a green light scheme. Uh, You've been greenlit to get murdered But if you fess up right now and take the heat, um, I can call them off. And that would obviously extract a confession. And you can imagine how that might be the tad bit coercive, right? Uh, And so that's how they would extract this information. And then they would take it back to the sheriffs who then take it to the district attorney. And here's how the, the scheme culminated. The DAs would then use this information to both build their case, follow other leads, but in many cases, just get that informant on the stand, right? And as public defenders, you know how this goes. This, this informant supposedly coming forward out of the goodness of his heart has this completely damning information, this confession about a defendant. The jury eats it up. And then, you know, 
wash your hands of the case, you've got a conviction without ever disclosing the nature of mm. the informant scheme and how that information was extracted, which is required to be disclosed under uh, Brady versus Maryland and its progeny. It's both impeachment information because it undermines the credibility of the informant. Obviously, if the jury knows that they're getting paid and getting time off their sentences, they'll take their testimony with a gigantic grain of salt. And oftentimes they were getting conflicting information from the defendant, right? They would get both a confession and a denial. The denial could be exculpatory, um, but they're not turning over that information, obviously. So this was this was how uh, the scheme ran for virtually 30 years. And as far as we know, it's still going on. So they wouldn't disclose the benefits. They wouldn't disclose the entire statement. These people who they were talking to all had attorneys. They were all represented, or many of them were represented while they were in jail on cases. And then the government was having these deputized people in jail interview them. Is that part of the problem? That is definitely part of the problem. And to get a little wonktastic for a second, you, you, you know, we've now touched on all three of the constitutional violations at issue. First, the target defendants are represented, so it's a messiah violation. Second, if they are coerced, it's a fulminante violation. And third, if the information isn't disclosed, it's a Brady violation. So those are the three claims at the heart of our case. The coercion, was it the case that the jail conditions allowed for harm to be happening to people who were incarcerated so that when you say, I'm going to be greenlit, that's a like a credible threat under the circumstances? Yes. Um, and we know that particularly in the Orange County jails, they have an e epidemic of jail death for all kinds of reasons uh, that go um, unaccounted for. So uh, not only was it objectively credible, um, what matters under the law is if the defendant felt it was credible and, you know, if there are gang, if there are jail gangs, which there are, um, and you've got a representative of that gang coming to you and saying, fess up or else, that's going to, you know, under the law, overwhelm your ability not to, not to hold steady. You know, one of the things I, I was curious about, and there's many things that I want to ask you about, but one of them is in this situation where you have this this threat, uh, threat of death, threat of violence, and it's coercing a confession or an admission of some kind. What I'm thinking about and what I'm concerned about, too, is that it might ultimately even coerce a plea, um, you know, where it's not just about the confession or the admission, but the, 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 the accused or the defendant is so concerned about their safety and given this ominous threat that's been presented to them that they then uh, don't litigate, don't fight, and, and ultimately uh, lay down. Is that something that you noticed or uh, that, you, that came to fruition? So a lot of these cases were fairly high stakes and a lot of them did go to trial, but I'm really glad you brought up the coercive plea bargaining problem generally. It's tied very closely to the use of informants in that modern prosecution has become a game of how easily one can get to a confession, right? It is not a game about investigating facts and bringing them to a jury to figure out what happened here. It's what combination of tactics can I apply to, to extract a confession, right? Even outside the realm of threatening or otherwise dangerous conditions in jail, the mere fact of pretrial detention is, in my view, coercive enough. We're removing people from their families, from their communities, from their jobs, right? You all know this. The rates of plea acceptance for folks who are held pretrial are astronomically higher than those who are released on recognizance. So it's all part of the same game. And this was just a particularly 
uh, violent and egregious version, I think. Yeah, one other question I had was you mentioned in your in your introduction of, of this scandal and, and this process, the prosecutor's role in all of this, and you the way you were describing it was that they essentially almost came in at the at the back end. So I'm wondering how aware the Orange County District Attorney's Office was of this machine um, and how involved they were on the front end in working with the Sheriff's Department to identify particular defendants or the accused that they wanted to specifically go after, how active they were in terms of what they were looking for in terms of information or admissions, and then uh, what they were made aware of once those admissions or confessions uh, came to life. Just kind of wanted you to speak about uh, speak about that. You know, we still haven't gotten to discovery in our civil rights case. So the full contours of what they knew and when and how involved they were um, are not yet known. However, it stands to reason that on the back end, they had every bit of knowledge they needed to ask more questions about where these informants were magically coming from and how the information was being extracted so easily, right? So this is a willful blindness problem at the very least. Mm -hmm. And on the front end, it again stands to reason that the sheriffs would have to know which defendants needed to be targeted, which ones had trials coming up, right? And that could only have been known via coordination with the DA. Um, and so it's our position that the DA knew or absolutely should have known about all of this. Uh, it couldn't have gone on for so long with, again, such intricate databases and such intricate movements of defendants without the DA also knowing. And I want to make clear that even if they didn't, we all know that law enforcement has independent Brady obligations, right? So the sheriff's department should have been turning this over directly to defendants anyway. D the, and ADAs who were getting informants dropped in their laps had an obligation to ask more questions, right? It, some of the informants were providing testimony on multiple high level cases. So that, you know, there's, yeah, this is, wasn't happening in the, in the connection of like a misdemeanor calendar where there's 40,000 cases and in one courtroom, the informants, uh, snitching on one person. And then that same informant snitching on another person in a different part of the County. These are like the, uh, you know, capital cases where the prosecutors have smaller teams that there's, you know, actually spending more resources on. So they can't attribute anything like I didn't happen to know because, if you're working on five death penalty cases and your colleagues working on five death penalty cases and you're using the same snitch on your cases, that's going to be something that's going to be like, huh, this is the luckiest informant. He just runs into people who then confess to capital murder to them. Over and over and over again. Yeah, out of the goodness of his heart, he comes forward and testifies at his own risk uh, for no compensation whatsoever. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's out outrageous.
You know, one of the things that comes to mind is we tend to have this very inflammatory and condescending uh, view of snitches. You know, snitches get stitches and they're these terrible people. But what I'm hearing and what I'm just feeling inside me is that, you know, snitches or the people that choose to be informants are victims themselves. They are victims of this construct of mass incarceration and the mass incarceration machine that is going to eat them alive. And so they are also in positions of great vulnerability and the sheriff's department and police officers and prosecutors recognize that vulnerability and sink their teeth into them and then essentially use them and, and exploit them for their own ultimate purposes. And so it, it's just, I, it's just an aside, but it, it's, it's, you know, there's the defendant that is, who is being snitched upon, who is being violated but then there's also the person who is the informant or the snitch who's also being violated and exploited in this really ugly way uh, by people from a position of privilege and power. Um, I don't know, that's just something that came to mind, and I wanted to sense, get your sense or your thoughts on that. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And we had long discussions about this when we were framing the complaint in the first instance. And you'll see that we never use the term snitch. We use the term informant. And of course, we didn't sue any informants, right? Um, our focus is on law enforcement. They ought to know better. Right. Um, informants who are responding to the incentives provided by law enforcement um, and actual and the, the negative incentives that will keep them in jail forever. They are, you're, you used exactly the right term, they are being victimized as well. And jail is hell and I would do anything I could to get out of there as fast as possible too. So I think it is in, important, um, not only again in, a, in, a, in an informant context, but just to remember the, the basic humanity with which we need to treat everybody caught up in this system and understand that it is those folks in law enforcement who wield the power and ought to know better and have constitutional and ethical obligations not to do this, those should be the targets of our eye or nobody else. Yeah, and you mentioned this... This Can I still call it the Orange County snitch scandal or is that... <laughs> No, that's perfectly acceptable. Um, you're not on the papers with us, so you got to get you got to get listeners <laughs> <laughs> to give the Ader Nation the red meat that they so that they love. So, so also like um, you mentioned, this machine operating for thirty plus years. Oh, and when did it come to light? And how did it all kind of how did it all blow up? Yeah, so this is a this is a really magical story about public defenders and investigative journalists working together to blow the top off the scandal. So um, the public defender, the individual public defender who finally um, you know, had had enough, his name is Scott Sanders. He's now become rightly a celebrity among dork circles like ours. Um, for the Sanders, Sanders stands, Sanders stands. That's what we're called. Oh, that, ooh, that's good, hashtag that. Um, so you know, Scott Sanders was the public defender on um, the murder case of Scott DeCry, which was a very big case in 2011, uh, following uh, you know the biggest mass shooting in Orange County history. And you know what what was essentially an open and shut murder case went south when the DA and let me say over the objections of the victim's surviving family members sought the death penalty, wasn't getting enough exacerbating evidence to get to the death penalty, and so started employing um, compensated jailhouse informants, uh, again, through this scheme that we just talked about and without disclosing that information to the defense. Um, and Scott Sanders just pulled the wool back and said, I don't believe that this informant is coming forward out of the goodness of his heart. There's more here. And Scott Sanders was lucky enough to have drawn a judge um, that was not part of this sheriff's 
uh, prosecutor's complex and allowed um, Scott to get sort of systemic discovery um, beyond sort of the scope of his own case to understand exactly how this informant scandal was operating. And so just through sort of dogged perseverance, Scott kept pressing discovery requests in his individual case and was able to extract um, some of these databases and documentary evidence that we were talking about. And then he worked closely with investigative journalists like Scott Moxley in Orange County um, to to slowly peel back the layers of the onion and um, and, and and eventually um, get a ruling from the California Court of Appeals that this was illegal. And then how far, you know, you, there's this individual case and did that case ultimately get dismissed? What was the remedy in that in that set of circumstances? So ultimately, um, two things. One, the death penalty was taken off the table. Judge Gothel said um, you can no longer seek it because you did it through this avenue. Um, and two, the entire Orange County DA's office was recused from the case because they had what was clearly an irreconcilable conflict of interest with um, the sheriff. And so, so let me clarify, when I say that um, Scott Sanders was getting systemic evidence, that's true, he was getting evidence, but he was hamstrung by the nature of criminal cases in the United States that he could only get relief for his individual client. Right. And so that's when our organizers and our attorneys in the Southern California affiliate of the ACLU stepped in um, to help out. And, and we decided to file a systemic civil rights case whose remedy could be an injunction to stop this thing cold. So I want to ask you a few questions on that. One is, is there an idea or an estimation as to how many convictions have been secured that utilized this um, machine of informants for 30 plus years? It's almost kind of mind boggling to think or to try to peel the layers back to understand how many people have been impacted by this whole thing. That's right. Um, it's scary to think about. Uh, and it sort of suffers from a catch 22, right? Because it's a, it's a Brady scheme. So it's almost impossible to know how much is being withheld from you, right? Our best guesses is that is that these cases run in the thousands. Uh, Scott Sanders is now representing another defendant who had a similar situation, and he has cited 146 cases just recently where there's likelihood of, of an informant being involved. I, I want your listeners to understand just how chaotic this could possibly be. I mean, we've got to start reopening cases, re-examining convictions, tracking down informants who have been released on the back of these sweetheart deals. It is terrifying to really think about the scope uh, 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 and, and, the, and the, the hit to the credibility of the Orange County justice system based on this. Yeah, one thing that uh, when we talk about progressive prosecutors is uh, that like seems essential is some sort of truth and reconciliation process for yeah. uh, these sorts of injustices, right? Where you you are the holder of the privilege, right? Or was any sort of work product privilege. Uh, you are the, uh, have standing to litigate against organizations like the ACLU. And you can make a decision if you're voting for a, a progressive prosecutor or if you're deciding whether to claim you're a progressive prosecutor about how to decide those issues that we're going to open up our files, uh, you know, not mm -hmm. just to an integrity unit, but to journalists and Innocence Project organizations and other impact organizations and back to the public defender. Here's all the case file uh, to look through uh, what happened. Uh, legislatively, 
police don't have to disclose their informants, their identity. But what they, mm-hmm. the way that they read that and the way that they put that into effect, not just police officers, but attorneys, is that, oh, well, we have a privilege. We don't even have to disclose the fact of the informant, which is not supported. But the overuse makes me think confidentiality in, around informants might not be worth it anymore. You know, that the legislature should look at the evidence code and say, we're not going to black box or I don't know what the term would be, you know, some sort mm-hmm. of uh, redactions around informants because uh, the benefit to society isn't worth that privilege because it's been abused, you know, so many times to only bat, you know, to catastrophic effect. Do you have any views about that? Yes, um, I agree. And, and we need to, again, I want to go back to my point about shortcuts. Informants are not evidence, right? We are not hampering in any way the prosecution's ability to investigate and prosecute crime. We are limiting a particular approach to that job whose reliability is under extreme question, right? So I have no problem, you know, going as far as banning them. But at least, at the very least, um, we should have extremely robust, you know, Brady lists or whatever you want to call them. Sure, if you don't want to ident- if you don't want to reveal the identity to the public, you can give a lot of information to the public, including how much you compensated them, how often have they testified in the past, how many times have they lied. Um, this is all relevant information, not just in a sort of Brady impeachment context. But yes, for voters to understand, is this how we want to run the criminal justice system that I elect, right? I elect the prosecutor. I can decide. I don't want he or she to run the office this way. And just to pick up on your point about progressive prosecutors, Todd Spitzer ran as a reformer, if anybody remembers, right? As compared to his predecessor, Tony Rakaukas, who oversaw this program for so long, that might have been true. But he was clearly a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I want to point out the hypocrisy of all of it, because Todd Spitzer on the campaign trail in 2018 promised to uh, to end this informant program. Right. And he came out hard against it um, and, and he got a lot of support for that. Right. And yet his office is still fighting our case and they're fighting it by making two pretty disgusting arguments. One, he is now refusing to concede in legal papers that this program exists or ever existed, right? Even though he campaigned on it, not only existing, but meeting, but it needing to end, right? So he's trying to hide in legal papers what he won't say publicly. And secondly, to get a little weedy, you know, we are suing under a taxpayer standing theory that California rightfully has that allows ordinary citizens to sue their government if they're doing something wrong. And Todd Spitzer has argued that, you know, that might apply to other government officials, but it doesn't apply to us. Why? Because prosecutors, right? There's yeah. no good reason except that uh, we do a dangerous job and therefore we can't be sued over it, essentially. And this is exactly the kind of thing that he railed against, the, the um, impunity of prosecutors when he was running against Tony Rakaukas. So the Orange County is a prime example of the fact that we now have to be wary of folks running on reform tickets who are just going to backslide. And we really need to hold folks' feet to the fire mm-hmm. during campaigns and after to make sure that we haven't just elected Rakaukis 2.0. So um, we're obviously, we're talking to you for our listeners' benefit via video chat, and you're sitting in Washington, D.C., I'm assuming. And so I'm curious to know how you uh, and the ACLU and the Criminal Reform Project from Washington, D.C. got involved with a, what would otherwise be considered to be a local case all the way out here on the West Coast in Orange County. Yeah, so two things. One, informants, as you well know, are not a localized problem. This is, uh, this is a problem nationwide, 
um, not only the use of informants, but the highly illegal use of them. Just over the last couple of years, there have been scandals similar to Orange County, though not as vast, in Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Milwaukee. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is endemic. So that's one thing, right? We want to address systemic nationwide issues. And second, about two and a half years ago, the ACLU decided to embark on a program to reform prosecution nationwide, right? And that's a large part of the reason that I'm there, because um, I used to be one. As you well know, prosecutors are simultaneously probably the most powerful actor within the criminal justice system and the most insulated, right? They're virtually impossible to sue. They have immunity doctrines that protect them. They have political power that protects them. They have legislative power that protects them. Uh, and it seemed as though um, while there were fantastic criminal justice and criminal law reform organizations all over the country fighting all of the various injustices in the criminal, in the criminal legal system, there weren't enough dedicated projects to this issue of prosecutorial overreach and right-sizing the role of the prosecutor to truly be about public safety and public health and not about extracting convictions at a breakneck pace, constitution be damned, right? And so, um, you know, for those two reasons, we decided that when we got the, the hot tip from our Southern California affiliate, that we decided we need to make this a national issue and put our muscle behind it. In your work and in your review of the national epidemic that involves informants that we know has gone on for decades in various parts of the country. Is this machine that Orange County was utilizing or is utilizing unique to them? Or have you identified other places across the country that have also utilized similar mechanisms and sophistication and regularity um, in their informant process? So we haven't dug in. Um, so we don't quite know if they were as Death Starish about it, um, you know, with with Excel spreadsheets and databases and what have you. But I can't imagine that that at least larger jurisdictions aren't doing something coordinated to right. keep all these folks straight. So it's really just a matter of boots on the ground and public defenders being willing to stick their nose in it and say, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to give up on this discovery. I'm going to figure out how they're getting so many convictions with so many informants. If you're if you're talking to a public defender and we've got a case and there's, you know, it's maybe a high-ish profile case and there's this informant who, you know, is, is a central part of the case who shows up maybe while the litigation is going. Uh, some questions I would have based on what we've just talked about are kind of like movement information, uh, mm -hmm. you know, seeking through discovery promise information, but that can be difficult, you know, if the promises are coming from some deputized person uh, who's providing the information. Do you have any thoughts about like, okay, what do you want public defenders to be looking for in the kind of line of the informant scandal when they're working a case? What are the red flags or, you know, what comes to mind? Yes, um, that's a great question. And you named a couple of them. Uh, movement information, especially movements for no good reason, right? We know that folks get moved from cell to cell um, for protection and other reasons, but, um, but why is this guy moving around a chessboard for no reason? Um, I think finding administrators and lower level deputies that don't have anything to do with your case, but magically appear on a manifest somewhere, right? I think um, uh, a lot of times, and, you know, mostly for, for resource constraint reasons, right? You're only able to interview or, or, um, or cross uh, 
the deputy who, or, or the, the police officer who, who worked the case, right? Rarely, if ever, are you going down to the level of, of the folks who ran the jail, right? But, but calling yeah. the folks who, who were in, 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 in charge of handling the informant on the way up to the stand. I think those are the people um, who might have information that you otherwise might not have. Um, and I think, uh, you know, again, pairing up with investigative journalists who have contacts um, within law enforcement and can ask um, is always helpful. But um, again, I don't, I don't want to pretend this is easy. Again, th this, is a, this is a scheme of secrecy. So if law enforcement wants to keep something secret, they can, right? Yeah. Eventually, it may just be a question of, of internal enforcement and accountability, which is to say, prosecutors need to stand up and say that this is wrong. And when people do it, they need to be called out and there need to be stricter ethical standards, stricter referral standards, so that the profession can decide as a matter of policy, we don't want to do this anymore. Now, I know that you and your listeners are rolling your eyes at something like that, but I, but I want to strike a, a note of optimism, which is that along with the quote unquote progressive prosecutor movement has come uh, a greater awareness of uh, the kinds of overreach and, and wrongdoing that can occur in prosecution. And therefore there's more attention on it now than ever. Thank God for podcasts like yours. Um, and I think it's getting harder and harder to sweep these things under the rug. So what's happening right now? To your knowledge, is Orange County still utilizing this informant machine? And then uh, second, what's happening with the lawsuit and what do you hope to come from it? To our knowledge, the, in, the informant program rolls on. We have no indications wow. that it has stopped. Again, Todd Spitzer is claiming that it never existed, so he's never claimed that it doesn't exist. Um, uh, and so we you can't, are you can't stop You can't stop something if it doesn't exist. It, it's it's <laughs> well, over. That's right. That's yeah, right. So the greatest way to... That's... So we are acting as if. We're acting accordingly. And what's happening with the lawsuit? Like I said, we are tied up arguing over standing because judges have acquiesced to this broad vision of executive power and law enforcement power that says we ought to be exempt from California's public policy of letting ordinary citizens sue um, their elected official over constitutional wrongdoing. So we're in the California Court of Appeals right now. We hope to win and get back down and start doing the kinds of discovery that will allow me to answer some of your other questions like what was the scope of this problem, right? What, what did, who knew what and when, right? Questions that Orange County residents and California residents have deserved for almost a decade since the decry case in 2011, right? All we wanna know is um, how deep did this go and therefore like what do we need to do to stop it? Power never gave up anything without a demand, right? So we're gonna have to fight through the courts of appeals and we're gonna have to get back down and eventually um, get in the mud, but we're, we're willing to do it. Okay, well, that's awesome. Omal, thanks so yeah. much uh, for coming on Aider and a Better. Yeah, proud uh, of you for doing the work. Man. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's really it's great. Inspiring. We fight for our clients, we do our, our absolute best for our clients and we see these injustices and we sometimes write them with respect to a particular case. You know, we stop one person from being harassed and by stop, I mean they don't get convicted of a felony and sent to prison for a long time. That doesn't mean we stop them from getting harassed. They were harassed, and we then provide some uh, advocacy for them. But these kind of structural fights have to happen. You know, they're 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 absolutely essential about how we you know and and they 
go to what we stand for, you know, or what we're willing to stand for. So yeah, we, we appreciate you for doing Yeah, I wanted this. to say too, it, it, we are in the, we as public defenders are in the courthouse and we're, we're at the jail and we're fighting for these people we are honored and privileged to represent. But having this conversation makes it, makes me feel and know that we are supported and we have an organization like the ACLU and people like you that have our back and that are uh, ready to fight uh, for us and with us um, on this kind of greater endeavor. So I appreciate it. Thank, thanks for doing what you do. And, and right back at you because we couldn't do it without learning the stories on the ground from you. Uh, and that's the takeaway. Luckily, we're all cousins, you know, three brown guys fixing the world. So it was easier in this case. But, um, but thank you for everything you do. All right, everybody. All right, Samuel. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Aider and a Better, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>